want to also take a look at Jesus and work. So if I say to myself, as I did this week, okay, let's think about Jesus and work, I immediately go to visions of Jesus uh, walking the you know, Judean countryside, teaching and preaching and working miracles and healing. It's hard work. So I think I connect with Jesus at work that way because in some ways we share the same job, right? Like I I'm a teacher and a preacher. I don't do the same works that Jesus did in many ways. And yet when I think of Jesus working, I often think of those three years where he went out to preach the good news. And I like to connect that way with Jesus' work. Um, but, and it is hard work to share the gospel, uh, but it occurred to me that's only three years of his life. It's three years of his life that he was out preaching the word. So generally speaking, as Christians in the church, we focus most of our attention on his birth, which is Christmas. We focus much of our attention on his death on the cross and his resurrection, which is Good Friday and Easter, right? Um, and then certainly we talk about those, those years of public ministry, but what happened in all those years between his birth and his death on the cross and his resurrection? What, what was going on there? So we know from Luke chapter 3, verse 23, I think we have that for the screens, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph. So we know that he was about 30 years old when he started doing the things that we all hear about, right? Teaching and preaching, walking on water, doing his miracles. He was 30 years old. So what happened between his birth and Luke 3, 23? We aren't too sure. The scriptures don't give us a lot of detail on that, but we do get a hint of it um, in, um, let me look at my notes here because I'm all uh, turned around here. In Luke chapter 2, verse 52 is our passage for the morning. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says this, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So that's written about Jesus when he's 12 years old. Oftentimes when we look at Luke chapter 2, we're looking at the, the Christmas story. That's the beginning of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is a long chapter, 52 verses. So Jesus goes from birth to 12 years old in Luke chapter 2. And so at the end of Luke chapter 2, the Joseph and Mary have taken Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem, and they actually lost Jesus. It's a wonderful story. Um, they find Jesus, and they're headed back to Nazareth, and we have this verse in Luke 2.52. It's a summary statement of what happened in Jesus' life from, from 12 years of old age until 30 years of age. This is what we know. He increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. But it's fair to ask the question, okay, but what is he actually doing? What's he actually doing? And so the only hint we get to that is actually in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, which I think we have for you. And so he's out there teaching in his ministries, and the crowd says, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, etc.? He's a carpenter. So his reputation as he begins to preach and teach, people come to hear him teach on the hillsides and countrysides, right? And they say, well, hold on a second. This guy's a carpenter. What's he doing out here preaching? And so from the age of 12 until the age of 30, Jesus is a carpenter. Now, you may have heard that before or seen it on a bumper sticker, but oftentimes we live in 2022, and when we think of a carpenter, it might not be exactly what Jesus was doing. In recent scholarship, people have begun to say, like, 
we probably shouldn't just think of Jesus working exclusively with wood. Scholars and people that study ancient history, they're like, you know what? He was probably like a general craftsman, and he was probably working with wood and with stone and with metal. Maybe he was making tools. Maybe he was building houses. Maybe he was building a synagogue. Or maybe he was shaping bowls and cups for people to have in their dining room. But the idea of Jesus and this description of him as a carpenter is probably more in that vein. But the point is this. We should assume that Jesus spent the majority of his life on earth working a trade. We should assume that from 12 to 30, he wasn't making disciples. He wasn't teaching. He wasn't preaching. He wasn't healing. And he wasn't working miracles. But he was increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man as he built a table, as he built a house, as he made a tool, as he labored with his hands in a trade. He spent three years in public ministry, and he spent 18 years laboring in a trade. And so oftentimes, we take those three years, and we say things like this. We say, we should, strive to live, we should strive to live like Jesus. should be our mission in life to live like Jesus. And then we preach and teach, and we say, you need to go out there, and you need to preach the good news, and you need to go out and make disciples. And, and those things are true. So we're not saying that's not true. We're just saying there's another thing that we can put on top of that as well. In addition to preaching the good news and making disciples, you know what we should also do? We should also be faithful to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man as we do our jobs, as we work, as Jesus did six times the amount of time that he actually dedicated to preaching and teaching, he dedicated to a trade. So we put this pressure on ourselves to live like Jesus did for the last three years of his life and ignore the preceding 18. And what if we could just try to emulate him for that whole 21-year period of time and that's what we're going to look at today on Labor Day weekend. We want to ask ourselves the question from Luke 2.52, how can I increase in wisdom? How can I increase in stature? How can I increase with, in favor with God and man? As I and most of us do the work of, of a trade, do the work of a, of a job, we're laborers. How can we live as Jesus did for those years? And so the, the verse says in Luke 2.52, it says, Jesus increased in wisdom, stature, and favor. Before we look at wisdom, stature, and favor, let's look at the word increase. So it's an interesting word. So to remind ourselves, the Bible was, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And so then we translated this ancient document from Greek into English so that we can read it. And if you go back and look at this word increase in that ancient Greek, it has a very interesting definition and it's a little more than what might be in your mind right now. So the definition is to progress, which isn't that interesting, but the definition continues. To make one's way forward by chopping away obstacles. To beat forward. To lengthen out by hammering as a smith forges metals. So all of a sudden, when we read in our Bibles that Jesus grew or Jesus progressed uh, or Jesus increased... We think, oh, well, he was small and he got big. Okay, let's keep moving. But that's not the word that he used. And interestingly enough, there's a word that means that. And Luke wrote that word in Luke chapter 2, verse 40. In Luke chapter 2, verse 40, it reads, And the child grew and became strong. 
filled with wisdom, and the honor, uh, the favor of God was with him. So in Greek, that word grew that's in Luke 2.40, it means what you and I think the word grew should mean. It just means he grew up. You look that word up in the dictionary for the Greek words, and it just means to grow, increase, become greater. It's a word used to describe babies. So Luke in in chapter 2, verse 40, wanted us to understand that, okay, Jesus grew up, just as you might assume. But when Luke, inspired by God, sat down in Luke 2.52, he said, also understand this, Jesus grew in that he beat away the obstacles that were in front of him. He beat his way forward, just like a blacksmith takes a piece of metal and hammers it out and lengthens it, so it was that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And so that has some implications for us has some implications for our teenagers, right? We, it's wonderful to try and imagine what was Jesus like as a teenager? Right, those teenage years aren't easy. It wasn't easy 2,000 years ago and isn't easy today. There are so many obstacles, right? There's so much peer pressure. There are so many temptations. It makes me think of those scenes in movies or in books where the character is just in thick jungles or in really high grasses or the underbrush is so thick and they have to get out their machete and they have to just hack their way through in order to get out. And that's the imagery that describes Jesus moving through his teenage years. And so we should have some support and some empathy and some prayers for those we know that are working through their teenage years, shouldn't we? Because it was just the same way for Jesus. It was different and yet the same. So Jesus didn't have screens and he didn't have the pressure of the, these, the social anxieties that come with our teenagers growing up with screens. He didn't have all of the body image issues that the screens present. Maybe they didn't have as much gender confusion. I imagine they had equal amounts of sexual pressure. Growing up today as a teenager is hard. It's like you're just in this thick jungle and you're just hacking away to get your way out, isn't it? Beating your way forward as you try to grow. And such as it is described for Jesus as well. But not just for his teenage years. He grew in wisdom every year as he led his way up into the thir- his 30s. And I believe if he would have lived into his 80s and 90s, he would have continued each year, each day, to press his way forward, to beat his way forward, to increase in wisdom, to increase in stature and in favor with God and man. And so that's, we want to be like Jesus in that way. So let's look specifically first at how we increase in wisdom. How do we increase in wisdom? And I'm going to answer the question to each of those from the Proverbs. So Proverbs is a a book of the Bible that Jesus would have had access to as he was growing up. And so how would one increase in wisdom? One way that Jesus could have increased in wisdom is we increase in wisdom by being quick to listen and slow to speak. That's a verse from James 1.19, but we also get that from Proverbs 18, verse 2, and Proverbs 18, verse 15. Proverbs 18, 2 and 15, it says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. 18.15 says, An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. And so one way that we can increase in wisdom is by being quick to listen and slow to speak. Proverbs tell us if you want to increase in wisdom, you ought to use your ears 
and it's foolish people who only wait for you to finish talking so that they can share their opinion. That's what foolish people do. That's, and I'm often a foolish person. I'm not just pointing the finger at you. Foolish people just wait so you stop talking so they can share their opinion. But people who are wise, oh, people who are wise, it says, they have ears that are seeking knowledge. So if we want to increase in wisdom like Jesus did, then we ought to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Just pay attention to conversations you're in this week and just pay attention to be like, how often are conversations just about people expressing their opinion and how much of conversations are actually about listening and seeking to understand what the other person is saying? You can pay attention to how you're behaving in conversations. How often are you truly listening, seeking knowledge, seeking to understand, and how often are you just waiting so that you can talk? You know, having kids in my house, having a five-year-old, a nine-year-old, an 11-year-old, you know, it's, it's interesting to me. I think in these early years of life, um, people learn so much, don't they? Like, you learn so much from, like, three years old to 13 year old, years old and so much from 13 to 23. And here's one of the reasons I think you learn so much in your younger years. Because we force children to sit down and listen. We send them to school. And when we send them to school, we force them to sit there and listen as someone tells them things. So we force them to be slow to speak and quick to listen, don't we? And if they go into college, it's a similar format, and they continue their education continually. They're setting themselves into an environment, and this premise is this. I will not talk, and I will listen. I'm sure there are other reasons that kids learn so much at such a young age, but what strikes me is once schooling is over, no one's forcing you to listen anymore. There's no structure in society that forces you to listen. Maybe your job will give you continuing education. But as we continue on into these other chapters of our lives, no one forces me to listen anymore. And so I think as we get older, it's harder for us to be quick to listen and slow to speak because we get into this habit of life where we do know more and we see that the people around us don't seem to know. And so we are quick to speak and slow to listen. And certainly it's true in biblical that the older people have greater wisdom and younger people have less wisdom. I'm not arguing that point. I'm saying the older you get, I think the harder it is to increase in wisdom. If you had some kind of chart, you could see like in your younger years, you have a rapid increase in wisdom. Why? Because you're always listening and you're always learning. And once you get older, I just think your, your increase in wisdom slows down and you ride and you coast on some wisdom that you've acquired. But what we need to do is even as we age, decade after decade, we continually have to be quick to listen and slow to speak. That's the way Jesus lived his life. And, and I think that it's true of, of Northgate Church. Uh, one of the coolest Bible studies that's listed in that pamphlet and is listed online is a Thursday Bible study. It meets, I think, at like 10.30 a.m. every other Thursday. And so by the time frame in which it meets, it sort of limits itself and to who can attend. But it, so it's full of primarily retired people, though it's open to anyone. So every other Thursday, Bob Croker gathers some of our senior saints, and they started off working their way through the Old Testament, and now they're working their way through the New Testament. 
And why I think it's so cool is you look around that room, there's people in their 60s and their 70s and their 80s, and there's people in their 90s who are coming down and sitting in the fellowship hall downstairs with their Bibles open. Some of them have been Christians for 70 years. And they open their ears to seek knowledge and they absorb God's word and they continue to learn. Lifelong learners. And that's, what, that's how we increase in, we, in wisdom our whole life. And it's not just has to do with the Bible, it has to do with our work. When you go to work, do you go to work to listen and understand your boss, to listen and understand your coworkers, to listen and understand the customers that you deal with? Or do you go to work to express your opinions? I think it's fascinating to imagine Jesus showing up at the carpenter's shop, walking in with Joseph, and, and Joseph saying to Jesus, oh, oh, Jesus, oh, listen, listen, when you cut wood, Jesus, always cut away from yourself. Oh, always cut away with the knife. And Jesus is like, oh, okay, thank you, thank you. Joseph walks alongside Jesus, and he says, Jesus, oh, there's, there's a better way to do that, Jesus. Let, let me show you a better way to, to work this out. We have to use our imaginations for this, and maybe you disagree with me. Maybe you think Jesus just has all the knowledge and all the wisdom up here from infancy. To me, that doesn't make sense, but you can try and convince me of that this week. In my imagination, though, Jesus grows up just as we grow up, and he has to go into that carpentry shop, and he goes in with a spirit of wanting to listen and understand so that he can apprentice and become a master carpenter. So if, if Jesus has stuff to learn, then we have stuff to learn. Jesus went to work to learn a trade, and it wasn't easy, and it's not easy for us either, right? It's like chopping away obstacles. It's like, well, who do I listen to, right? Jesus is like, okay, well, all these guys working this trade, some of them are just blowing hot air. So how do I know which ones to listen to and which ones not to? Jesus shows up for work, and they start assigning work crews, and Jesus is like, well, I would really like to go on that work crew and do that job, but he gets assigned to a different work crew and gets assigned a job that he's, he's really more fit for that job than this job, but in humility, right? He has to chop away at his, those, those temptations to pride and pursue wisdom by being quick to listen and slow to speak. He grew and he increased. He beat his way forward, chopping away the obstacles so that he could increase in wisdom. That's how Jesus lived his life. He also increased in stature. And so we ask ourselves the question, okay, how can I increase in stature? And so this one, you know, is a little bit trickier, right? So in some sense, Jesus literally increased in stature from growing from a 12-year-old boy into a 30-year-old man. And so that's the understanding of it. And so some of us in the room are over the age of 30, and when we think of increasing in stature, like the only way we're growing is out, right? And so what does it mean for us to increase in stature? And so this is how I like to think of it. Think of the first one, he increased um, in wisdom as mental, and let's think of increased in stature as physical. So let's just think of this as Jesus was a good steward of his body. It's a great outflow from the last series of messages, right? We must believe that Jesus was a good steward of his body. And he increased in stature, meaning he increased in health with each year of his life. He was a good steward of his body. He was a healthy individual. And so if we frame it that way in our minds, then, then I think, and we look again to the book of Proverbs, I think one way we can increase in stature is by being physically active. So if we look at Proverbs 13.4 to make this point, 
And it says, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Jesus was no sluggard, we have to believe, right? Jesus must have been physically active, not a sluggard. Now, with a quick glance at the headlines in the health section of the bookstore or the health section of, uh, of the Internet, it's not hard to do just some quick research and see that Americans today are not as active as we should be as we live out our lives with these bodies. I read this this week. Americans are facing a health epidemic rooted in lifestyle and behavioral choices rather than the spread of infectious disease. So we have a health epidemic, so we're being told, but it's not infectious disease. It's choices that we're making regarding our lifestyle and our behaviors. We're not getting enough physical activity, and that raises the risk for obesity, heart and vascular disease, diabetes, cancer, and earlier death. God created our bodies to be active. And as time goes by and as as technology increases, we have the ability to be less and less active. And it's something that we should keep an eye on as we try to be good stewards of the body that God has given us as Jesus did. Most of us spend most of our days sitting. It would not have been so in Jesus' time. And I'm not saying as a disclaimer, obviously I'm not saying that those of us who sit for our jobs are sluggards. I am not saying that, it, that, that I understand that some people are more physically able to do things and other people are physically unable to do other things. I understand all that. Generally speaking, myself included, some of us have become a bit lazy. And I'm not saying it's easy either. But the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. If I sit on the couch all day with a bag of potato chips at my side, and I crave a healthy body. Well, the proverb says, the sluggard craves and gets nothing. But if I am diligent, the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. So if I am diligent to go on a walk every day, well, then my soul will be richly supplied. And there are obstacles to cut down along the way, right? There is a way in which this is as hard as it is for a blacksmith to beat a piece of metal and lengthen it, so it is hard for us, certainly. But if we would be physically active, if we would be good stewards of our bodies, let me just read off a list of the things that would be true because God created us and he wants us to have these things. It would improve our memory and brain function. It would protect us against chronic diseases. It would aid us in our weight management. It would lower blood pressure and improve heart health. It would improve our quality of sleep. It would reduce feelings of anxiety and depression. It improves joint pain and stiffness. If you maintain your muscles and your strength, it'll help you with your balance. It'll increase your lifespan. See, God created our bodies to be active. And when it says that Jesus increased in stature, I think it's fair to assume that Jesus lived an active lifestyle. He was not a sluggard. He was diligent, he was active, and you and I are called to be like Jesus in that way as well. And that has applications to those of us who sit in a chair for our job, like me, it has applications for those who, who do hard physical labor. But Jesus was active. He increased in favor with God and man. That's our, our third one for the morning. How do we increase in favor with God and man? Now, before I tackle this one, I... I do want to just give a disclaimer for this one. We have to be careful. You can't earn God's favor, right? 
So the way this is worded, one could fall into some bad thinking and be like, okay, I can earn God's favor, so I need to work hard and do good, and then God will, will love me more. Well, well, that would go against much of the rest of Scripture, right? I mean, the, our faith is built on the concept of grace, and grace is God's great gift to us in his love, isn't it? That it says, no matter what you do, I will love you. You have this love. It's poured out on you from God the Father. And even if you make all the wrong choices, he will continue to extend his grace and pour out his love on your life. However, so if I think of my own children to try and understand this, right? And if you have children, I'm sure this is true of you as well. There's nothing my kids can do to make me stop loving them. I will always and forever pour out my love on them. And yet, let's understand this. If my kids disobey me, it's not like I'm always going to smile on them, is it? It's not like I'm always going to look at what they're doing and smile. Oh, you have my favor. Yes. Yes, that's wonderful. Yes. I'm so happy to see what you're doing. Yes. No, no, and and in that vein, that's what we're trying to capture here. God the Father looked down from heaven and we saw the activity of Jesus. He smiled. And the people that Jesus was working with and living around in his community, they smiled as well. And that's what we mean when we say that, or when scripture says that Jesus grew in favor with God and man. Jesus looked down from heaven and he smiled. He says, oh, he's, he's being obedient. And so one way we can increase in favor with God and man is by prioritizing loyal love. And I get that from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. It says this, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So Jesus is growing up. He's like, I'm going to increase in favor with God and man. How is Jesus going to do that? Well, perhaps Jesus read Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 to 4, right? He goes to synagogue, and Jesus sees, okay, to grow in favor with God and man means I I must prioritize loyal love. That's how I'm summarizing Proverbs 3. It says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. So there's this idea of steadfastness and faithfulness. That's the word loyal And then there's this love. And so the idea is that there must be this prioritization of loyal love. How do we illustrate loyal love? So I could give illustrations of what love looks like in a moment, right? There's countless beautiful illustrations uh, of just extravagant acts of love that we could use here to illustrate what that looks like, but I give you none of them. Because I think what that does is it, it causes us to think of this in the wrong way. That makes us think of, of a moment of love. And a moment of love is an important thing, but it's, it's not what's referenced in Proverbs 3, 3 through 4. Proverbs 3, 3 through 4 is saying steadfast and faithful love, loyal love, long-term love, The types of love that is loyal are not necessarily flashy. They aren't dazzling. They aren't the stuff of great stories and illustrations. It isn't glitzy and exciting. It's more gritty and boring. 
It's constant and it's loyal. It's illustrated by a father who gets up every morning and goes to work and does hard work to provide for his family. It's illustrated by a mom who works in the home and on the home and outside of the home decade after decade. It's illustrated by the worker who is honest and trustworthy and dependable. It's illustrated by the boss who is patient and gracious and kind. It's illustrated by the Christian who participates in worship and and the community of faith year after year. It's illustrated by the church member or neighbor who checks in on and loves and cares for their neighbor decade after decade. The kind of love that, are, that, that receives a favor of God and man is a loyal love. It's a long-term, steady love. And it's, that sets it apart from all of the peer pressure of earning the favor of man in the world today. If I want to have your favor, it's probably going to be dependent upon like a momentary thing, right? Like, say this, do this. Wear this, right? Like that's peer pressure. This moment, do this, say this, wear this. But favor that we're pursuing as we read Proverbs 3 through through 4 is, is this long-term loyal love. You see, just think about it in our work. So the people that I want to have come and do work on my home or do work on my car or do work on, well, I can't, do work on your hair, Right? You refer your barber, right? What's a great referral? I've been going to him for 20 years. Right? Like, that's what you want to hear in a referral. He's been doing work on my house for the last 10 years. He always does a great job. Oh, they've been servicing my car for 30 years, and I'm telling you, they do a great job. Like, that's, that's a picture of how we ought to be working, isn't it? I, I imagine that's the picture of what Jesus was like in his trade, Right? You can see that illustrated in his companies and industry um, organizations around us today, right? Some of them pop up and go away very quickly, maybe because they just sought the the short-term pleasure of man in a moment, the favor of man in a moment, rather than committing themselves to certain values that would cause them to show this loyal, steadfast, faithful love through their business. To circle back to the proverb before we leave it behind is in Proverbs 3, 3 through 4, it says that we should tie them around our neck and write them on the tablet of our heart. This steadfast love, this faithfulness. It says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. So it's interesting to ask the question, why, why do we tie it around our necks? And Maybe it's because it's elusive. Maybe it's because this long-term, faithful, loyal love is elusive. It's not natural, and so we should tie it around our necks. It could also be that what we tie around our necks are things that we prioritize, things that are precious to us, that are close to our hearts. A crucifix, a picture of a loved one, a pendant that is meaningful to us. So when we say if we want to increase in wisdom, we must prioritize loyal love, that's where we're getting that from. Because whatever you tie around your neck, that's that's a symbol of what is a priority to you. And such should be this loyal love in your life. And just to increase the imagery, as you tie something around your neck, it's wrapped around this, this critical passageway of air, isn't it? We bring air in through our 
nose and mouth, and it goes down into our lungs, and then it's exhaled back up through, and it all happens through this like critical passageway of air, which we have wrapped around the highest priority items to us, and it's almost as if this loyal love is ordinary and boring. It's, it's forgettable but critical. It's ordinary at the highest priority, much like each breath that you breathe each day. It's not glamorous. It's not glitzy. It's not the thing of great social media posts, but it is faithful and ordinary, but yet the highest priority. It's the same when you write it on the tablet of your heart. Your heart beats all day, every day. Does it get recognized? Does it get noticed? Is it, is it glitzy and glamorous? No. Is it absolutely critical to your long-term health and benefits? Yes. So if we want to increase in favor with God and man, it should be this steady, loyal love extended to God and man. And I think if I were to illustrate it for us today, it would be uh, a couple in our church named Jim and Doris Jordan. So if you've been around our church a while, then maybe you know them. Um, if you're new to our church, you may have never noticed them because I think it's fair to say they're not glamorous nor glitzy. They've loved our church for decade after decade after decade. They've loved one another as equally long. They're both in their 90s. Jim Jordan had a heart attack Sunday last week. He was in the hospital, so he's been on our hearts and our minds this week. He's, he's home now and, and doing well. Jim and Doris are together again in their home. But to me, they're an illustration of loyal love for one another. They're an illustration of loyal love to a church. Decade after decade after decade. And maybe you didn't notice it, and maybe that's an illustration of what loyal love sometimes looked like. As they faithfully loved and served our church decade after decade, it was simple yet critical. It was in some ways ordinary, and yet the highest priority that we want to hold up for what it looks like to increase in favor with God and man. So from the age of 12 to the age of 30, Jesus grew in favor with God and man. Jesus grew in wisdom. He grew in stature, and we want to do the same. This Labor Day weekend, as as we think about this work that Jesus did, as he went to work each day, he increased in wisdom by being quick to listen and slow to speak. He increased in stature by being physically active, and he increased in favor with God and man by prioritizing this loyal love. Now, as we go, there's one last little wrinkle. Here's the catch. Jesus was God, and I am not. And so as we go out from here today, we can't do this, right? Like, Jesus could do this perfectly because he was God. But, but you and I can't. I'm, I'm aware that as I walk out of these doors and I head back into my regular life, as much as I want to prioritize loyal love, as much as I want to prioritize like healthy activity, I know that I am going to fail because I can't. I can't live this lifestyle. I can't just day after day increase in wisdom. I can't day after day humble myself and listen and seek knowledge. I just want to share my opinion, right? I can't live this lifestyle. I can't, but God can. Jesus can. And so we close our service today 
reminding ourselves of Jesus as we look to the bread and the cup. And, and so if you haven't grabbed one, you're welcome to grab one. They're on the table in the foyer for you as you came in. But as we remember the Lord's sacrifice on the cross through, through his bread, which is symbolized through this, this piece, uh, his body, which is symbolized through this piece of bread, through his blood that was shed, which is symbolized through this, this cup here, as we, as we eat his bre- this bread and drink this cup, it is symbolizing, it is helping us remember that Jesus is inside of us. He's in us. This, the Apostle Paul wrote about this in Colossians 1.27. He said, here is the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So as we participate in communion today, it's this, this symbolism to remind ourselves that Jesus is within us. I can't. No, I just can't. But Jesus can. And the last words he gave us before he ascended up into heaven at the close of Matthew's gospel is he says this, I am with you always. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He will do it. And so our, our life as we leave here today is a life of faith, humbling ourselves to say, like, I can't, but Jesus can. Jesus is within me. Jesus is with me. His power is at work through me. And so this week I can, through the power of Jesus, as I walk by faith and trust in him this week. So... As we prepare our hearts for communion, I will read to you the words of our Savior as he told us to remember his death in this way. After I read these, I'll give you some moment of silence to reflect, and then we'll partake of the elements together. This is what it says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 and following. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let me give us a moment of silence to reflect before we participate in this, and and it's for the forgiveness of your sins. So in this moment of silence, go to God and and ask him to forgive you of your sins. Tell him that, that you want to grow in him this week. You want to be reminded and live by faith this week. So I'll give you a moment to do that.